We have been walking through the semester of applied theology. The first lesson uh, we gave was what is discipleship? We looked at how, quite simply, discipleship is the following, the loving, and the living and dying for Jesus Christ, our, our rabbi, the, the rabbi that we follow as disciples, being formed more and more into his image and looking to him for our life and for our breath and for our all. And so there's, when walking through uh, just different spiritual disciplines of how do we uh, conform ourselves, how do we put ourselves uh, under the faucet, if you will, of God's grace and look more to him? How do we pray? How do we fast? How do we evangelize? How do we do all these things? And then today in our final lesson, we're going to look at one more key piece of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is making more disciples of Jesus Christ. So a key element of being disciples is making disciples or discipling, if you want another word for it. So we're uh, overview, we're going to just do three things. Uh, look at what is uh, making disciples in the scriptures. What do the scriptures have to say about that? We want that to be our, our foundation. Look at the nature of making disciples and then the practical section. How do we actually make disciples, which would be about half the teaching? How do we make disciples? Disciples. So let's look at that first piece. Uh, what is discipling or making disciples according to the scriptures? Uh, one of the, the central pieces of our religion, if you will, of, of our people uh, as Christians, as the people of God, is that our God is not distant. He's not far off. We're not guessing what he's like or guessing about what he wants from us. Who our God is is a God who comes down and says, here's who I am. He comes down in the burning bush. He comes down to Moses after the Exodus and reveals his character. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Our God reveals who he is to us. That's the God that we serve. And along with that goes uh, commands, all throughout the Old Testament, commands of reminding ourselves and teaching others who our God is. The God who's revealed himself, teach who he is, and teach his commands. We have passages like this, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise, just simply Moses' way of saying, no matter what you're doing, right? When are you not sitting, walking, standing, or laying? I think that covers about all of it, right? Let this infuse all of your life, is essentially what Moses is saying. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be on the frontlet between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the word disciple is not in that passage, but you see the point there. God is clearly showing he wants the knowledge of who he is and what he has done for us as his people to just simply infuse every moment of our life to fill our words as we tell others about God and especially as we teach those in our own home, our children, who God is. That's just the Old Testament, God revealing himself and then commanding us to talk about him, talk about who he has revealed and what he has revealed. And then we see in the New Testament, Jesus, the eternal son, comes down as the perfect revelation of God, the exact image of the living God, and calls disciples to follow him and then commands them to go teach others who he is, bring them to me and teach them all that I have commanded them. John 17, this is Jesus praying to the Father right before he goes to the cross. As you sent me into the world, so you see that, the Father sending the Son, the perfect revelation. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, the disciples. So the Father sends the Son as the perfect revelation. The Son sends us as disciples into the world to teach, to show others that perfect revelation, to bring them to that perfect revelation of Jesus Christ, to make more disciples. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, these 12 in this room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you 2,000 years later, Jesus is praying for in John 17. 
So the 12 disciples and then the millions of others, including you and me, that would believe through their word that they may, verse 21, all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So you see that picture there. The Father sends Jesus the perfect revelation and Jesus sending out his disciples to make more disciples. We looked a few weeks ago, Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The very uh, nature of the call is that you will be calling others. To follow Jesus means to call others to follow Jesus. And then Matthew 28, perhaps the most famous passage, uh, the very end of Matthew, Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then the last sentence, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you and I as disciples are called to go make disciples of Jesus. And a really, really, really important thing for us to see in our kind of pragmatic age is the command is to make disciples not to go just make converts. The church has always wrestled with the numbers temptation, especially in the last 100, 200 years. You know, the very, very Baptist thing to have kind of the numbers on the back of the board, how many conversions, how many baptisms, things like that. Most missionaries, when they're sent off, the main thing they're asked from their sending churches historically is how many conversions, Right? How many souls out of hell and into heaven? Right? We, we don't care anything about faithfulness or learning the language or you making disciples. It's just how many people aren't burning forever. Right? That's the impulse. But you see, as you examine the scriptures, there's nothing in the commission and the command of God or of Jesus, our Savior, to go be fire insurance salesmen. It's to make disciples. Why are you called to Jesus in the first place? Is it just to not go to hell? Or is it to know him, to love him, to live in light of his life? What are you going to be doing for all of eternity? Sure, not burning, but living in beautiful fellowship with the living God that you were created to know, to live in light of, and to praise. That is why we call people to him, not just to keep them out of hell, but so they might know the God they were made for and that he might receive the glory that he is worthy of. So don't confuse those two. We're making disciples, not making shallow converts. Or to say it another way, conversion is obviously a very important step, but it is step one. It is not step last step whatever number that would be, okay? Uh, I, one of the things I love about Billy Graham, I wrote a bunch of papers about Billy Graham uh, in seminary. We lived in Charlotte uh, where he grew up in the Billy Graham Library, which is a secret Billy Graham museum, but Billy thought that would be arrogant, so he's like, let's name it a library, although there's no books, and it's not a library, it's a museum of Billy Graham. Uh, that was like, it was free, and so anytime someone visited, I was like, let's go to the Billy Graham Library, right? So I went there 12,000 times so I love Billy. Uh, one of the things that I love that he did is he would not accept an invitation to an area, to a city to speak, unless the majority of the local churches were on board with him showing up because he didn't just want people to walk the aisle, pray, and see you later. He wanted them plugged in so that they could be discipled. Okay, Billy had no, I'm just making conversions and leaving and job done. He went to great lengths to make sure there's people to talk with them, to counsel them after his sermons and people to connect them with local churches that would disciple them. So Billy had the same idea. The great evangelist of, of the 20th century knew we don't stop at making converts, we make disciples. So what is making disciples? What is discipling? Uh, which may be harder to define than you think. So we use gospel that word, and disciple so much uh, without defining it that it, it often becomes white noise, and it's just like a catch-all for anything godly that we're doing. 
Uh, and so it kind of loses all of its meaning. So what I mean in this teaching, I'm going to give a very broad definition, uh, or uh, uh, rather I'm using Mark Dever's definition uh, in his book on discipling. He said, discipling is, a deliber- is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Or if you want a more simple definition, just helping others follow Christ. That's really broad, and I have that very purposefully broad, because I think a mistake we often make is draw the lines far, far too narrow, where discipling in our mind is just one-on-one mentoring, and then the gathering, the church Sunday service is just kind of an event to attend, not something absolutely essential to your life as a disciple, and we'll talk about that more later, but I, I purposely have that uh, broad so that you can see kind of all the elements of discipling. I have a quote here from a pastor in Virginia named Garrett Kell. Making disciples is helping other believers grow in Christ-likeness. Jesus has designed his church to be a body, 1 Corinthians 12, a kingdom of citizens and a family who actively build each other up into the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 2 and 4 who are called to instruct each other about Christ, Romans 15, and to imitate others who follow Christ, 1 Corinthians 4, Titus 3. As disciples, we are to intentionally pour into other disciples so that they can pour still into others. So you see that. It's not just this person has asked me if I will disciple them, and so we meet and walk through a book together. That can be part of it. That can be an essential part of it, but don't draw the line so narrow that you actually don't view the majority of what the scriptures call discipling as just other stuff, especially the gathering to worship God. So that's my broad definition for what it is, who should do it. That's the next question, and we've kind of already answered that. Christians, if you are a disciple, you're called to make more disciples. The nature of the call is to fish for people, and therefore all Christians have, in the very nature of being brought to Christ and equipped with the Holy Spirit, have what they need to make disciples, which I think we, again, often misunderstand. We often feel very inadequate or that think there's some sort of varsity realm of Christians, which means you do it professionally or you're 80-plus or something like that, and they can do the discipling, but not me. Uh, which uh, I think is an unhelpful thing that the Reformation actually looked right at. Martin Luther was like, nope, wrong. There's no holy priests and dirty common people, right? Rather, Martin Luther looked at 1 Peter 2 and recovered what we've called for the past 500 years the priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter 2. And you are a chosen race. This is him speaking to Christians. That You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. With Peter, there's no such division of the professionals and then the people who listen to the professionals. Again, think of Moses. Maybe you're like Moses, God calling him, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. What does Moses say over and over and over again? I don't speak very well. I've got a stutter or whatever. Please send somebody else explicitly. Please send somebody else. And then God eventually says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God has always been the one who equips. And as we just studied in 1 Corinthians over the past few years, God is the one who changes the heart. 1 Corinthians 3, this is Paul speaking. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see, God is the one who equips and God is the one who actually does stuff in people's hearts. If you listen to how uh, the pastors up here pray before and after sermons, you'll often hear begging God to do something in your hearts because we're very aware. At most I can do, or at most what Jeff can do is motivate you, and it will probably fade by the time you get in the parking lot. We have no ability to change your heart. God and God alone has the ability to change your heart. And so similarly, when making disciples, you can rest knowing God is the one that as you're faithful to preach the gospel and to teach the scriptures and to point to Christ. He's the one that changes the heart. 
Uh, Ian Murray, who's an author years ago, wrote a book called Revival and Revivalism. Uh, and essentially what he was tracing, he's a historian. So he's look, he looked at the First Great Awakening, Charles and John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, those guys, and how uh, the First Great Awakening, when there was this mass revival all over New England and England, and essentially all they were doing, there was no like silver bullet they had discovered. All they were doing was praying like crazy, preaching the gospel and teaching their preacher or their, their people the scriptures, and the spirit was just moving incredibly. And then, once all those guys kind of died away and the, and the awakening became very famous, a second generation came. And we got what was called the second great awakening, which wasn't that great. And you had the total shift. No longer were we trusting God to bring the result. Now it was up to man to bring the result. And so you had very, very uh, manipulative sermons. You had uh, what was called excessive uh, pathos, very, very exaggerative sermons. People were just basically, it was like a one-act play, just trying to manipulate you to feel bad. And if that wasn't enough, they had what was called the anxious bench on the front where you could come sit if you wanted to just really wrestle over the state of your own soul. And so it was very, it went from God does everything to actually man's now going to do everything. And it was very, very superficial. It didn't last long. And we're still living in kind of the, the wake of the second great awakening that was very man-centered, not trusting God to actually change man's hearts, but thought, we'll actually do it. We can manipulate people enough. 2 Corinthians 4, this, is, this is, should be our mindset as we try to make disciples of others. We have this treasure, this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show. Why? Why is there this treasure in jars of clay? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Someone looking more like Jesus is not up to your charisma. It's not up to your wisdom. It's not because you've arrived and now you're passing down your great nuggets of wisdom from on high. Rather, it is God's power. You're pointing them beyond yourself to another. You have, if you're a Christian, you have the gospel, you have the scriptures, you have a Savior who says, as we looked at a second ago, I'm with you always to the end of the age, and you have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within you. You are equipped to make disciples. In fact, the health of our local church and every local church depends on you making disciples. If a church is looking to its pastors to be the only ones to make disciples, that is a very, 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 very unhealthy church that will not last very long. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, it's very important for us to see of what is it that we're doing here in McKinney off Virginia Parkway? What are we doing here as a people of God? He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers, why? To equip the saints those in the seats, those listening to what's happening here on stage, for what? For the work of ministry. What else? For the building up the body of Christ until we have attained to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of, of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see that picture there. Your pastors, your elders, the shepherds, the teachers are meant to equip you for the building up of the church. If we reverse that, very unhealthy. If we believe Ephesians 4 and live by it and love one another by it, we will be healthy. You will make disciples of one another. Furthermore, the New Testament passages is filled with what's often called the one another passages, all vital parts of discipling. I have a few there. Colossians 3. Again, this isn't, this isn't written to Timothy. This isn't written to Titus. These aren't pastoral letters. This is to the church at Colossae. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching 
and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing song, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart, right? That's discipling one another. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, right? That's essential to discipling, all the one another passages. So you see that clearer more and more. Two last things. Notice, if you are discipling in the context of the local church, as you should be, or as, as, as is the primary, not like you can't know or disciple Christians who don't go to Parkway, but the primary way that you disciple, the weight is not all on your shoulders, right? It is the body who builds up the body. You don't have to have all the answers. You can say the glorious words. I don't know. And then stop talking. I mean, it's great. You can just, what rest? It's like a deep breath. I don't know. We'll find somebody else that maybe knows. I don't know. Right? Weight's not on you. It can be on other people. Number two, the goal, the goal isn't perfect, seminary-trained, PhD brilliance. It's pointing others to Jesus, right? When you call someone out of their sin and point them to Christ, you're discipling. When you encourage someone, when their eyes are down and you lift them up and you say, look to your Savior, trust the gospel, that's essential for us discipling one another. Again, helping one another follow Jesus, pointing others to Jesus. So, what, what is discipling? Who disciples? And then let's look at the nature of discipling. Quite simply, we lead people to Jesus. We've said this a bit. We'll go a bit more into it. The goal is to make them more like Christ, which should be your goal as a disciple as well. Again, you're not passing down uh, your wisdom from on high. Okay, You're pointing. You're a giant arrow that points people beyond yourself to Christ. Essentially, what I'm getting at here is the danger of discipling is pride. The same danger that's in everything, right? You're perhaps leading others because you want followers, right? You want, yeah, I've got some stuff to say and no one's ever really listened to me my whole life. Finally, I've got an audience, right? That's the danger of young preachers uh, that I did, perhaps I'm still doing. Pretty much any time you have a stage of people listening, you're like, I'm supposed to preach this text, but I have all these great golden nuggets that I want to say, and now everyone's listening to me for, for 45 minutes. You know, this can wait, and you're just like a constant soapbox rant, and it's super unhelpful. You're just filled with pride, right, because you now have a stage. That's an incredible danger in discipling, you leading people to your favorite issues rather than leading them to Jesus. Humility must be the soil that uh, discipling grows out of. If you're the one being discipled, knowing I need to be formed into Christ, I'm here to learn. I'm not here to let other people know how much I already know. It's essential if you want to be discipled, and it's essential if you are discipling others, knowing that you haven't arrived, you're pointing to Christ, not letting pride rot away at any discipling relationship. So we lead them to Jesus. We proclaim Jesus in our discipling. Colossians 1, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So you see that. You proclaim Christ in order to present others mature in Christ. That's the goal. Make them look more like Jesus. How do you do that? Teaching them Jesus. So uh, lead them to Jesus, proclaim Jesus, and then imitate Jesus. How should we disciple? Probably the way that Jesus discipled. How did he disciple? Uh, we'll see that, first of all, in Paul, 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me. Uh-oh, red flag. Pride. Imitate Paul. No, he keeps talking. As I am of Christ, right? I'm a giant arrow to someone beyond myself, Imitate Jesus in your discipling. So we love one another as he loves one another. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we love each other like Jesus loves. We serve one another and lay down our lives as he did. Mark 10, 
For even the Son of Man, the eternal God of the universe, through whom everything was made and for whom everything was made, came down, why? Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First Peter 2 for this you have been called. Why have you been called, Peter? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. We lay down our lives as he laid down his life, and we imitate his humility. If humility is the soil that it must, discipling relationships must grow out of, we imitate Christ's humility. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And you, if, you, if you know Ephesians 2, the rest of the verse is this beautiful picture of Christ coming down, taking the form of a servant, being humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross, a slave's death. We imitate his humility as we disciple others. So we imitate him in his discipling. And then I think one of the most important, often overseen things, you must be a disciple. You must be being discipled in order to make disciples. You are leading people to the same green pastures that you have grazed from. You are leading people to the still waters that the shepherd has led you towards. If you do not know the shepherd you're pointing people to, you will not make disciples. You must know and love and live and taste and see the good God that you are leading people to. He must be your refuge. He must be your strength. He must be your salvation. He must be the one that you turn to when everything else falls away. You're leading people to the same fountain of life that you drink from. Don't miss that. I quote McChain often because I think he's taught me this. One of his most famous quotes is, my people's greatest need. He was a pastor. And he said, my people's greatest need, right, that would be a big thing, whatever's coming next, is my personal holiness. The most important thing my people need is for me to look like Jesus. Not his education, not any of these other things that we might think he would say. It's my personal holiness. And I think where he's getting that is 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. Persist in this, uh, for so by doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in Charlotte and author, uh, says something very similar. My congregation needs me to be humble before they need me to be smart. They need me to be honest more than they need me to be a dynamic leader. They need me to be teachable more than they need me to teach at conferences. If, you walk, if your walk matches your talk, if your faith costs you something, if being a Christian is more than a cultural garb, they will listen to you. You are leading people to a Savior you've been with, not abstract ideas about God so that they'll be more ethical and conservative. You see that infinite difference, that eternal difference between moralism and knowing the living God that is vital for us to see in our discipling. And then lastly, like Jesus, we disciple in light of eternity. These aren't fun activities we do in a Christian club. These are weighty, eternal things making disciples. Your money will fade. Your possessions will fade. Your discipling the work you do making disciples will last for eternity. Look how Paul describes his ministry among these different churches. Therefore, Ephesians 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 1 Thessalonians 2, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul saying, when the second coming happens at the end of days, I will look at those whom I've pointed to you and say, that is where my life's labor, that's what, that's what is going to last into eternity. These churches that I've said, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith and live in him. 
There's no higher honor than serving the king of the universe and doing work that will last for eternity. So that's discipling in light of the scriptures. That's the what, the who, the why, and now let's get to the how. Okay, this is the majority of it. How do we make disciples? This is kind of the practical semester. I put, by the way, on the back of your notes, the last page of your notes is like an appendix um, from Jonathan Lehman, who is the editor of Nine Marks, you know, that ministry, and he just like lays out. Sometimes we need like an incredibly practical thing to see for this to, you know, come down the ladder of abstraction and you can see it. He literally writes out like a day that probably none of us ever live broken up into convenient 30-minute slots where you could just see how do you, how do you, if you're so busy, that's probably so many of your thoughts right now. I'm incredibly busy. I have no time. Uh, he kind of sees how you, or shows you how you can fit things in. It might be helpful. might not be. You can just tear it out. It's not helpful. But uh, if not, you're welcome. Uh, okay, practical. Practical. How do we make disciples? As I mentioned earlier, we often draw the lines too narrow, which is really, really unhelpful because it cuts off the majority of what the New Testament would call discipling. Uh, so Parkway's mission, what's our mission statement? Glorifying God or to glorify God by making disciples. How does the Parkway Church do that? Primarily, I'll show you kind of different layers, if you will, of discipleship. Primarily, we do that through uh, the local church gathering, Sunday, the service. Right? That's when we preach the word, you hear from God hear from God's book being proclaimed to you, right? That's why Jeff and I and anyone who preaches needs to be faithful to the text. Otherwise, we said, thus says the Lord and said something wrong. And there's arguably no more terrifying place to be, right? You gather, you hear from God, you hear the Bible, you sing the Bible, right? Tim is very, very careful to make sure every word out of our mouth that we sing is beautifully rich with the truth of God, you read the Bible, you pray the Bible, our prayers are filled with scripture and you see, if you will, see the Bible through communion and then when we have baptism. That's the first kind of layer and that's actually the essential one. That's one we can't do without. Right? If we did away with Sunday service and just had community groups, we would be a very unfaithful church. Okay? That's the primary way we make disciples, but there's further layers to that. The second is uh, just the community of the local church, formal and informal. We have community groups, and then you guys get together, you read the scriptures, you pray together. I know there's a bunch of book clubs, right? You get together and discuss and dig into each other's lives. That's another layer. Another layer is just kind of everyday fellowship that you probably wouldn't think of as community discipleship. You know, it's, I have new kids, and I don't know what to do with them, so I call Carl, and he tells me. And he gets it from the Bible. And so Carl is discipling me on how to be a good father. After those phone calls, I don't say, hey, thank you for discipling me over the six minutes. I typically just stop crying. And then I hang up, and then I tell Harvey what Carl told me to tell Harvey, right? So that's Carl discipling. That happens all the time, right? How many of you are just, hey, how was your week? And then you just unburden yourself. And either people are carefully listening because they love you, or they're encouraging you, or they're lifting your eyes to Jesus, or they're rebuking you of sin, that's all discipling happening. And then kind of the, the, the smallest layer, we, or the last layer, we have what we typically think of as discipling, the one-on-one -on -one mentoring, the, the Moses and Joshua, or Elijah and Elisha, or Paul and Timothy, or Obi-Wan and Anakin, or Luke, or whoever. I haven't seen the new series, and who's his next guy. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of the, that's what we normally think of. That's certainly part of it, uh, but it is part of it. Don't draw the lines too narrow. I don't want you to rob yourself of what the New Testament would say is discipling, right? So we've done, by the way, lessons on the gathering. Jeff did that. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, I taught on community. You can go listen to that. This lesson is uh, focusing more on the kind of everyday, the one-on-one -on -one or the, the smaller groups. I'm not talking about the gathering particularly in this lesson. So, so the rest of this teaching is just going to be my practical things that I, I thought were maybe helpful. Again, they're not exhaustive. I say that every time I teach. Uh, but so how do you practically make disciples or be discipled? You know, both sides of that same street. Uh, first steps, you knew this was coming, pray. Isn't that sweet? Like, oh, just praying. It's the bookends of all things we do as Christians. Seriously, pray. Your God hears you when you pray. He hears his children. He is more aware of you than you are aware of yourself. There's not a millisecond of your day he's not looking at you, right? Pouring out his eternal love 
on you. He knows the desires of your heart. So if you want to be discipled, as you should, take that to him. And say, Father, I want you to surround me with godly people that are just going to, kind of against my will even, lift my eyes to your son. I want you to bring someone in my life that loves you more than me and will mentor me and will constantly look into my life and care for me and, and see what's causing my eyes to look down and look back up. Surround yourself by good friends. Ask God just to do it. He, who else is going to do it? Right? Again, it's not up to your cunning. God is sovereign and can bring those relationships into your life. So pray, beg the Lord to, or let me say it this way, make it God's fault if you're not being discipled, right? Say, hey, I've asked you and I'm looking and there's no one, right? I'm just surrounded by duds. And then you'll get convicted of pride because that's not what happens, right? Pray, right? Go before the Lord and ask him. If you want to disciple, if you don't think, I'd love to share my wisdom, but you actually have a righteous version of that where you're like, I love Jesus. I'm talking to the wall because I, love, I just want to tell others about Jesus. Ask God, bring people into my life that I can just point to Jesus. I can't imagine doing anything else with my time, please. And just see what he does. I think he's a fan of that. I think he's a fan of exalting and glorifying his son. So just ask him. So that's the first, pray. And then the second, build relationships. All discipling will be built on the foundation of good relationships. If you don't know anybody, that's where you start. Pray and build good relationships. You don't have to, hi, my name's Jared. Let's go to lunch. Would you like to either disciple me or be discipled by me? Just, just breathe, right? Just build good relationships, and then we'll see where the Lord takes it. So build relationships. Be intentional. Cultivate good friendships, right? Push past small talk. Small talk's not bad, but it is, you know, a little fickle, floaty. Push past that. Ask people how they're doing. Get to know people, know their story, know what they're walking through. Those are good first steps. And then once you've done that, I've got, I think, five here, pointers. And I tried to be real creative and give you two. And some of them are creepy. I'll just warn you. Don't look ahead. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, number one, uh, making disciples individually and in Groups, individually, again, have different people to speak into your life, okay? Think about the different areas where you need to grow, and then think about the people that you know that are really gifted in those things, and then go hang out with them, and then go unburden your problems to them, or even ask them, hey, I really want to grow in this area. Will you help me? Can we meet every week, every other week, once a month? Things like that, okay? Uh, new parent, again, I was like, Carl... He's on my favorites. He's getting texts every other day. You know, his, if you just scroll through Carl's Jared Lawson text, it's like, there's a crack in the side of my house. Is it about to fall down? He's like, no. That's what happens with houses. I'm like, oh, cool, okay. How do I cut the grass, Dad? And he's like, okay, just I'll come over and I'll teach you for 40 minutes, right? Three years ago, coming into a church context, I was constantly asking pastors, how do you, uh, like, do all of this? Seminary like told me who God was and then didn't tell me what to do with people. So I'm constantly finding mentors, right, who can speak into my life. Think about that. You want to grow in prayer? Find people that you know that are good at prayer and go pray with them, right? So you could do it with several people or you could just find one person, the kind of classic uh, Elisha, Elijah relationship, and just ask them, can we meet uh, once a week, every other week, once a month, things like that, and just, yeah, lay your life out before them. Uh, that's easiest, by the way, if it's the one who wants to be discipled doing the asking. It's always a bit awkward when you show up and you're like, hi, I've noticed you were immature. Luckily for you, I'm extremely mature. How would you like to do this, right? It, I mean, I guess it could happen, uh, but it's a little awkward. So if, if you want to be discipled, as all of you should, uh, it's best if you do the asking. You take the first step right, in the relationship. And that's usually good. No, I mean, it's usually good with someone a bit further down the line, right? Again, here's where the humility comes in. Uh, I, I spent a, a couple of years in Australia with a missions organization called YWAM, which stands for Youth with a Mission, who I love. Uh, I actually do. I always typically mock them before you guys, but they, they, those two years formed me. And I met Claudia there, so how could I not be appreciative? But notice the title, Youth with a mission. So it's a bunch of young people with a mission, which means very passionate, right? Good thing. There is a YWAM base almost in every single country because young people are real excited. Now, that apparently, I found out, comes with some negatives. 
when you have no gray hair. So typically every YWAM base could have some issues uh, with you know, maturity and theological knowledge and all things smartness. So there's some, there's some uh, trouble right there. So it's typically helpful if you don't just pool your ignorance with people your own age, but actually look to people who have lived a little bit more of life that can actually, from experience and through probably going through the mistakes that you haven't gone through yet, help you avoid those, okay? So that's individually. That's you and another person. And then also groups. Again, tons of you are already doing this. Either join or create uh, groups that get together and just pray. We get together once a month and just pray, and we read the scriptures, or we want to study different really rich theological books, right? Books that have kind of stood the test of time, and talk about them and see what is it, you know, doing in my heart, or get together with people and read the Bible for a year or something like that. Do a Bible reading plan together or get a good Bible study. Just groups, right? A lot of you can do that. That's, that's vital uh, for discipleship. So individual and groups. Number two, formal and informal. Formal and informal. So formal, I simply just mean you've planned and it's on paper. We're going to meet every other week or something like that. A regular defined time to meet for the purpose of being discipled or making disciples, whether it's you meet every week to talk about theological equipping or the sermon, or you meet with someone who has your same job, and you read a book together that is you know, a Christian book that somehow revolves around your profession, and you get together every other week to talk about how does this make you a more faithful employee? How does this make you more evangelistic at work? Something like that. Again, you'd be creative with this kind of stuff. Bible studies, studying theological books, prayer, fasting together. There's stuff you probably didn't think about. Just Think, I mean, even through the list of what we've talked about this semester, get people together and do one of those things. Evangelism. If you want to go evangelize and just be more intentional about doing that, you can do that uh, formally. Counseling, singing together, or uh, accountability, right? Something like that. Or informal. Informal. So you have formal things and then informal. Here's another quote from uh, Garrett Kell. We always need to be intentional but we don't always need to be structured. He means formal. Talking about discipleship. In fact, Deuteronomy 6, what we read earlier, shows us that discipleship happens when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Every moment presents an opportunity to discuss who God is and what he's doing. Since we are always following Jesus, we always have an opportunity to help others follow him as well. Okay, so simply surround yourself with people who will point you to Jesus. Who you spend time with will influence you for good or for bad. If you spend time around people who just tend to always see the negative in everything and are a tinge cynical, you're going to grow in cynicism, period. You're either going to be frustrated all the time because that's just how they are, or you're going to join them. They, they will influence you. And if you're around people who are just encouraging, who have a natural, incredibly strong faith, who through the sharpest trials just have this belief that God is absolutely in control, even though they can't see any of the evidence of it in their own life, that's going to strengthen your faith. And that's going to make your eyes go up through the midst of pain and difficulty. Surround yourself with people who are just going to naturally point you to Jesus. You want stress to go out of your life? Or to at least dwindle, be around people who will point you to Jesus and point you to the peace that surpasses all understanding. Again, if you want to you know, be more evangelistic, hang out with evangelists. You want to pray more, hang out with people who pray. You want your lawn to look better, hang out with Carl, right? Carl is the source of discipleship, I think is what I'm getting at for me, right? It's very obvious, uh, right? And so side, kind of sidebar, but uh, included. Uh, this includes people you listen to and people that you read, Twitter, news, right? What you are filling your ears with will make you sad or angry or mad unless you're very, very, very careful to fight against it, right? So if you're just listening to pastors who point out problems but never point to the gospel as the solution to those problems, you're probably going to be real stressed because you're listening to a guy you shouldn't be listening to. If you're listening to people who don't have a naive view of the world but have a realistic view of the Savior who says, the world will bring tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You'll live like Christians are meant to. You see that. 
Yes, have a realistic view of the world. Yes, listen to people who point out ridiculous things our world is doing, but don't stop before looking to the God who is eternal, who will one day wipe that away and then wipe away your tears and then bring you into his eternal kingdom. Be careful who you listen to. They're who you're hanging out with. That's probably why you should read books from dead guys, right, who are going to Uh, C.S. Lewis says, put the clean sea breeze of the centuries through your mind, okay? So that includes that as well. That's, uh, there's there's good things in listening. I mean, we have just a ridiculous wealth of resources and who we can listen to. I can listen to any pastor, basically, just by pressing a couple buttons on my phone. The danger is they don't know me. They can't point out problems in my own life. You see that. They're just, they're off somewhere else. So watch that. And then just look for ways where your life can overlap with other people. You're going to the park, just call somebody else who might be available to go to the park there with you. And you're never just going to sit and go down slides together or watch your kids go down slides together. You're talking, right? You're encouraging. You're hearing how they're doing. You see that, how, how discipleship can just make its way into everyday life, right? Okay, number three, continual and seasonal. Okay, here's where my, my creative abilities were kind of breaking down, right? These aren't Nice and easy to remember anymore. Continue, oh, sorry, continuous. Whoops. Continuous and seasonal. Continuous, you're always going to be needing to pray and study the Bible. There's elements of discipleship that will always be the case, but there's going to be different seasons of your life where there, the majority of what you need to be discipled in is, is different than uh, what will be for the rest of your life. So example, sorry, that was explained poorly. Example, new dad. I need a lot of discipling on how to be a new dad. One day, I hear all those kids will leave my home, and it will still be important, but not as important as here's how you keep them alive today. You see that, okay? Newly married, you probably need to be discipled in marriage. So there's different seasons where it's going to kind of fly up the charts and be on top, right? That's a good thing, right? So you can also add, hey, this year, I really want to grow in this area, Uh, So I'm going to find some guys and, you know, read a book on this subject. I want to study God's sovereignty more. So I'm going to find three guys, and we're going to pick three really good books and read it and talk about it. You see that? So just like a season. So continuous seasonal. Number four, here's the creepy. Watch and be watched. Is this recording? We're going to have to cut this part. Okay, watch people and be watched. Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders Those who spoke to you of the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What's Hebrews 13 saying? Look, watch. Watch how they're doing it. Consider the outcome and imitate. Philippians 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What's Paul saying? Watch. Watch other faithful men and women follow Christ and imitate them, okay? When I first came to Parkway, again, new dad, new pastor, I was doing a lot of watching. I'd go watch how Jeff parents his kids, how Tim parents his kids, how everybody, you know, everybody parenting, because Claudia was eight months pregnant, and I was like, okay, just drink it in. Just did a lot of watching, never spoke to them. They were like, how are you doing? And I'm like, shh, just keep doing it. I'm watching you, right? Very creepy. Uh, That's not true. It's a joke if you're new, Uh, right? Watch how people pray, Watch how people sing. That's one of the beautiful things about singing together. Watch, you know, you had a tough week. See other people praising your infinite God and let, let yourself be encouraged. Watch people go through suffering. Watch people endure hardships that you can't fathom enduring and watch them cling to Jesus and feel a stronger foundation form beneath your feet. Watch one another follow Christ, and then be watched. There's the old saying that more is caught than taught, which I don't think is necessarily true, but you get the idea. Your life will disciple people even if you're not explicitly teaching people things. So in a humble way, allow other people to watch your best attempts, your, your, your attempts at faithfulness and following Jesus. I heard a pastor the other week say someone in his congregation came to him years ago and was having trouble in his quiet time and just said, it just feels so dry and empty. Can I come have my quiet time with you? And they lived close to one another. And he said, sure. So he just left his uh, door open at 6 a.m. and the guy would come in and they'd have their quiet time in the same room. 
which I think if we try that in Texas, there'd be a lot of deaths uh, because if your door's open at 6 a.m., I mean, I know you guys are armed and you shoot before you look and ask any questions. So it might not be a great example for our context, but you get the idea here, right? And then within this, this is so important, let people watch you fail and let them watch you repent, especially parents. Your kids do not need to see a squeaky clean parent who doesn't really need to rely on Jesus because they've got it all together. Your kids need to see you as a sinner dependent upon grace. When you yell at them, go and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for yelling. Daddy sin, will you forgive me? Daddy needs Jesus just like we all do. Let your people watch you so they don't grow up and be like, that's fake, that's a facade, and I'm done with this. Let them see reality, that you are a sinner saved and dependent upon a gracious, gracious Savior. Number five, real quick, be intentional and be available. If every second of your day is crammed and you have no time for discipleship, you're too busy. You need to cut some things out. Be ready to sacrifice time. Be ready to sacrifice preferences to meet with people for discipling. Open up your homes. Open up your lives. Even if you're an introvert, by God's grace, I can do all things through Christ, right? Even if you're an introvert, you can do this. And then be intentional. Again, this isn't just going to happen. You're going to have to seek it out. Be prayerful in it. And then just lastly, be easy to disciple. Be flexible. Be humble. And then lastly, uh, I, didn't have, I couldn't think of a cool second to this. Just one last word on uh, parenting. Carl gave a whole lesson, so you can go back and listen to that, uh, the main discipleships in your life, if you are a parent, is your kids, period. You have 24-7 for 18 years in your home to disciple your children, and that is your primary job. Eugene Peterson says uh, to pastors, if you succeed as a pastor, or if you're succeeding as a pastor means failing as a parent, you've already failed as a pastor, And one of the things I thank God for most, as someone who loves church history, I read a lot of biographies, and I love that God put uh, a lot of heroes in my life early on who I read their biography and found they were horrible dads and horrible husbands. They were not faithful at home, but they were being so godly at church. There's times when you need to stop praying and go home. There's times where you don't spend the only money your family has on more books when your fridge is broken. That actually is a real thing. Uh, I won't tell you who it is because you probably read a lot of their books as well. And I just had such a fear in me of, oh, I don't want to repeat that same mistake. If your constant refrain is, I put a roof over their heads and I put food in their mouth, congrats, that's part of it. That's only part of it. And you might fail if that's what you're leaning on. Those are the main disciples in your life. Fathers, disciple your family. I, I, I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago a book that I just finished, the, an autobiography of a missionary named John Patton, who was a missionary to these island of cannibals in the 19th century. It's an incredible book. And the, it's 500 pages. The first 60 pages are worth the price of, his whole, of the whole book because he just talks about his dad and what a dad he had. His dad's name was James Patton, incredibly poor. Uh, they had very, very little means to live on. But I put a couple quotes, or I want to read these to you. I don't think these are in your notes. But here's just how he described his father. Again, he lived until his, he was 80, and whole islands were coming to Christ. So his life is one of incredible missionary success. And I can't help but think that kind of life doesn't happen without a dad like this. This is John talking about his father. How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me. This is when he was a kid. Uh, How much it impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees, all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learn to know and love him as our divine friend. And then when John is about to go off, uh, actually feels called to ministry, and he's going to leave his home, his father walks with him to the train station, and he describes the event. This is a little lengthy, but I'll read it to us, because I think it gets at the heart of what I think it means to be a faithful father. 
They're walking. He's about to leave the home and go, go do ministry. He says, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. He's writing this in his 80s. And the tears on my cheek as, fl- are as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to this scene The first half mile or so we walked together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as often was his custom, carrying his hat in hand with his long flowing yellow hair, then yellow, and then later as white as snow, streaming like a girl's hair down his shoulders, his lips moving in silent prayer for me. His tears fell fast when our eyes met one another in looks which all speech is in vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer and tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing, head uncovered, where I had left him, gazing after me, waving my hat in hand, adieu. I rounded the corner out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me any further, so I darted to the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after gazing eagerly in my direction for a while, he got off, set his face toward home, and began to return, head still uncovered. His heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayer for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and oft, by the help of God, to live and act as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as God had given me. And I can't help but think an incredible missionary was made by an incredible father and mother. There's passages like that about his mother as well. And I have two reminders on my phone when I get home. I pull into the driveway, I look at them, The first is leaving job number two for job number one. A little cheesy, but it tries to get me in the, what am I going into? This is what God has called me to primarily. I love you guys. He's called me to you secondarily. And then I have James Patton. That's the second reminder because I just want to be a dad like this. Who, When my kids think of me, they don't stop thinking of me. That goes straight up to God because they saw an arrow that points to Jesus. And I could go on and on of mothers throughout church history. Susanna Wesley, who discipled her kids and discipled, in a way, George Whitfield. And essentially, through her influence, the First Great Awakening happens. And St. Augustine doesn't exist as St. Augustine without his mother's prayers for him. If you read the confessions, you just see faithful parents in the background of so much of the giant movements God has done throughout history, discipling making disciples of their kids. So make disciples of your children. Don't buy in to the world's narrative that this is just an inconvenience keeping you from true fulfillment out there in the world, having a successful career or whatever. Drink in the narratives of the kingdom of God, which says this is what you have been primarily called to, teaching your kids the scriptures, teaching them to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what you've been called to. And that is the end of my teaching. And I was, listen, I just, I gave a big talk about it's good to be vulnerable in front of you uh, and be a sinner. It's been one hour. Remember at the beginning and the first teaching when we were like, hey guys, I know we didn't have time for questions every time during our church history sermon. No more. We promise And then basically every single time we were like, oh man, we ran late again. We just want to teach you this lesson of how to repent and be be a sinner saved by grace. I'm just kidding. I just genuinely ran out of time. I thought we'd have time for questions. 
But the lesson still remains. So, sorry, but you can email info at the Parkway Church. All of your burning questions, I will pray for us, and then we will be dismissed. This is the last teaching uh, of, the, of the semester. July, we'll be taking off. Uh, you can show up here at 9 and pray, but you won't hear a teaching, or you can show up at 10.30 and hear service from July on. But let me pray for us, and then we will be dismissed until service at 10.30. <sighs> Father, we love you. We thank you uh, for your son. We, we are wandering sheep unless you send the good shepherd to call our name. We're here because you've come down. You're eternally good and loving, and we are by nature children of wrath. We rebel constantly, but God, because of your rich mercy, because of the great love, with which you love us. Even when we were dead, you made us alive. And so we can even talk about making disciples only because you have, against our will, grabbed us and brought us into your divine family. And so I pray that you would equip us with the Spirit, that the power of the living God would flow through us as we are giant arrows pointing to your Son, and that that would be a mark of this place as we exalt, as we long to exalt our Savior, as we're being built up as a church, that that would be just a reality here, that we would make disciples because we have a God who is powerful and strong and able to make disciples. And so we pray in the name of our rabbi, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.